You're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. The Catholic Psyche Podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not intended to take the place of medical or mental health treatment, therapy, or diagnosis. You should always consult a trained mental health or medical professional for such treatment. Psyche Podcast. This is Sarah. And Deacon Basil. This is Chris. He's pouring wine Back in case here. you can't hear him. Yes. Um, this is kind of like a symposium, if you will. Yes. Know. Today, we decided to not have a topic and just talk about the things that we've been thinking about. Yeah, we've been like ranting and raving for the last hour now, and if we'd had the mic on that whole time, we would have a solid gold podcast by now. Well, or, or, people would, or people would be calling... <laughs> Asking what's going on with these these musings of these loons. Yeah, today we're just going to, I think we're just, we each have been, over the last, over the holidays, reading a lot and thinking a lot and um, continuing to, you know, practice as as therapists. And so maybe we can all just share some uh, some tidbits and see where the conversation goes. Let me think. Um, here's, here's something. So one thing we haven't talked about on the podcast explicitly is like the church's sex abuse crisis. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we want to go there for like the whole time, but it's something my wife and I have been reading a lot about and thinking mm-hmm. about. And um, um, I came across a fascinating figure uh, recently when I was looking through some of these documents that have been made public by these various, um, you know, grand juries. And um, there was a priest who was who discovered this phenomenon before almost anyone else, who was advocating before anyone else for laicization. And it's really fascinating to read about this guy. His name was Father Gerald Fitzgerald. Have either of you heard of him? Yes. We were talking about this yeah. at a party a few weeks ago, I That's think. Right. Yeah, or like Is this ago. the guy who wanted to send these abusing priests yeah. to their own individual islands? <laughs> so, yeah, here's this. He wanted to buy, he did. He put a down payment on an island. He wanted to build a monastery and send abuser priests to this island to separate them from society for for the remainder of their lives for penance. Um, and other church officials wanted to reallocate them to new dioceses. He was doing this in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Yeah, wow. He was advocating for this. You know, he, he started his ministry by um, helping alcoholic priests be restored to their priestly functions. And he was so effective in doing this and helping priests recover from alcoholism that, you know, bishops started sending him priests with other problems, namely sexual problems. Like, oh, you, you fixed up this drinker. Can you fix up this guy that has a problem with sexually molesting children? And very quickly, Father Fitzgerald realized that he couldn't heal them in the same way. For one thing, he noticed that these abuser priests would not take accountability for their actions the same way the alcoholics did. And that remorse for him was a key step to healing. Mm-hmm. So he really advocated in strong words that, no, you can't just send these people to me and then bring them to new pastures with new victims. The time has come for us to put charity to the mystical body and not to this pseudo charity to these individual abuser priests. Yes. What do you think about that? That's I, a great I line. think this is really insightful because the, the first and foremost, when, when the abuse crisis kind of hit, um, well, the second time, really, um, what I have heard is a lot of really trite, uninsightful responses to it, as if this was somehow a response, uh, this was a result of 
pe- people who, who weren't reading the reports, but stuff like this was happening in response to a Vatican II. Like, this was the craziness of Vatican II. Yeah, like bad like theology that. or something. Right, bad <laughs> theology or something like that. And, and that's not at all the case. This, coincidentally, has always been present within the church um, as far back as, as, as you know, the, the early church fathers. Um, well, the, this has been present forever like well, the I mean, accounts of sparta and the spartan soldiers right i mean this is this, this is, is not a unique not, thing yeah. to the modern era or the postmodern era and and i mean there are accounts in um civil court or excuse me canonical courts which was that in these situations priests who would be um caught you know and and tried and found guilty would be handed over to civil authorities in these situations and and that that oh. was the the church law wow. um, on how these things would happen, and that the 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 civil courts at this time were quite intense on what that would look like. Are you serious? Like, how, how what era are we talking? This would be high Middle Ages. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh this my god. Not a unique. A yeah. Unique now thing. everyone's acting like um, like handing priests over to civil authorities is some violation of like the church's sacred nature. Okay, you know what? Get over that old boy bro code. Well, yeah. that's exactly new okay. boy. That's a whole other conversation. But I, I mean, and and the punishment for child molestation yeah. at the high Middle Ages, especially in, in most of the major metropolitan cities, was death. Yeah. Well, you know, our Lord said something about a millstone. So right. Well, exactly. And I guess that's kind of the point: is that this is not a uniquely, um, this is not a unique thing to uh, the United States. This is not a unique thing to Pennsylvania. This is not a unique thing to the postmodern era. This is not a unique thing to the 20th and 21st centuries. This okay. has been something that has been constantly there. And I remember um, that this is, this is you know, really important, but that the same human heart, with all of its uh, beauty yeah. and all of its flaws, keeps beating behind the chest, in the chest of every single human being, no matter what. And um, that can be a very beautiful thing, and that can be a really terrible thing. Can I temper that claim, though? I mean, yes, there's always been vice in the church and yes these vices have these particular vices were present even in the middle ages there were child abusers but or you know abusers generally right but um but to greater or lesser degree so you know in my you know it's like in in the church right now the church is is a is a big umbrella and a lot of these eastern riots particularly the ones in the middle east just don't seem to have this problem to this degree maybe that's my naivete but it seems like a lot of christians right now in like syria for instance have are, are, are worried about other things like not dying like not dying and and i don't know i mean you know we know throughout history that it's it's it's, it's been shown that um you know perse- great persecution does tend to produce great faith and, and i imagine great faith tends to be incompatible with say the abuse of minors so I, you know, I don't want I don't want our listeners to walk away thinking that this is like the kind of hopeless thing that like no matter what we do, no matter how we reform the church, there will just always be this level of abuse. The abuse re- reached this level because of institutional cover-ups and some flaws that are particular to this time and place. No, oh, I agree wholeheartedly. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I guess my my point here is by bringing this up is that. I've heard a number of defenses for Pennsylvania um, oh. in the sense that, oh, well, that happened so long ago, or, oh, that was a different generation of priests, or, oh, um, 
No, that is that is a commonality between uh, just across the board. And I've also heard that there's other kinds of justifications which psychologically just simply do not bear out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really important to say. Not that not that we shouldn't look for causes or we shouldn't um, uh, try and mitigate these, not mitigate, but try and remove mm-hmm. these as much as possible with as vigorous yeah. an attempt as we possibly can. But I think trying to just point to, I don't know, this idea of post-Vatican II, post-conciliar... Oh, sure world is a big mistake like a right. singular like a sil- like a silver bullet that'll just fix this whole thing exactly yeah. like once we can restore the original latin to the mass then the bees will then go everything will. yeah and and i have actually heard that the reason why these kinds of things took place was because of um because of the tr- um the wh- what was it that there was a a um polluting of the liturgy yeah. in some way um with the novus ordo mass and therefore right. this is why these things are happening that's just not that's just not true well what i'm telling you guys at the beginning is that father gerald fitzgerald who founded the servants of the paraclete were, he was treating these people in the 40s and 50s that's back when they all had the, the the old liturgy and many of these cases in pennsylvania also took place pre oh pre novus ordo um within the trinitine liturgy so i yeah when everybody when when the when everywhere was speaking latin within ecclesiastical Realms. There you go. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is that simply pointing to simple quick fixes yeah. is a mistake. Great. Wait, I can't just put on a band-aid? Can't no. Can't escaping no, wound can't. that's just gushing blood? What? That's weird. Well, and then I've also heard the other side, which is to just simply throw your arms up in the air and say, well, every, you know, we're just going to kind of push through this as quickly as possible. You know the people who did it right mm-hmm. so far? I mean, I hope more will come. The Jesuits... So far, within the United States, um, published everything about all of the cases and all of the accusations. This came out kind of, I mean, I don't know if you guys have heard about this. No. Within the last... uh, in the last probably six months, well, six no, weeks. No, no, no. no the wow. last six weeks. Uh, and uh, like Alaskan natives and stuff, like the Jesuits over in the provinces up, uh, you know, in that part of the world. Well, and, and even here, like in Denver, like I've heard, oh, there was this, there were these situations where the Jesuits just released all of these things where they basically opened up their records and there was transparency. That's great. I have heard mixed things about their handling of this response, but that's, that isn't very encouraging. That, that aspect, that aspect, aspect would, be, yeah. would be phenomenal. Well, you know, you're only, they say in AA, you're only as sick as your secrets. And so if the church anywhere has files in a basement that have that point in any way to abuse um every day those files aren't made public is is another um grave sin on the consciences of church leaders well and if simply it was simply put if it was just we need a year Mm -hmm. to be able to to verify all of these files but Mm -hmm. we're going to have a third party verify these files um and this is who it's going to be and on January 1st, 2020, we're going to release a full report on that. Right. I, I mean, would that's accept that. how you do it. Yeah. Which was which was the cr- criticism of the Holy Father when the USCCB, I mean, let's not get too into church politics here, but the USCCB made some recommendations that he shot down. Um, people were like, what's the deal? We need to fix this yesterday. And the Holy Father's intention was to wait until the February um, world meeting of bishops, right? There's the, there's essentially going to be a synod on this, right? Am I writing that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, acting acting uh, in a coordinated way with a date, with a deadline, with the full un- unity of the church seems to be an appropriate way. But I get it. I mean, there's I, I, I will never fault anyone for being mad about uh, expressing anger about this because I mean, my wife and I we've expressed so much anger over this and like 
it's a, it's egregious, it's atrocious. Let's do it right. Let's fix it. Indeed. Yep. I think, I think the other thing with it is to be very suspicious of quick, quick, simple answers. Right. Which we, um, this is none. not an Occam's razor kind of response. No, no. You know, mm-hmm. this is. This is really, I think, a lot of deep soul-searching. Yeah. And I think it also points to the fact that um, that we have to look at um, not only the institutional church, but ourselves with these kind of things. Right. Um, not that everybody out there is, is guilty of this in, in any way. Sure. I'm not making that claim at all. But that there is um, the reality that, that the church allowed this to happen because things weren't um, brought to light. Because there were things brought to light beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. And so the word, I mean, one of the most pernicious, uh, one of the most uh, pernicious responses to the abuse crisis is to uh, take on this conspiratorial narrative where it's like, you know, there's these dark shadowy elites within the church who want to abuse and protect abusers. Meanwhile, the rest of us good guys are on the sideline, you know, doing our part by like watching documentaries about it like no there's evil in the heart of every man and uh you know the people who were uh on the sidelines watching with suspicion who didn't act have a lot to answer for as well mm-hmm. yeah, yeah what's the quote all that need all that evil needs to succeed is for good men to do nothing yeah i think that's i think that's a good quote i i think so i mean when I do safe environment classes, I say if there's an accusation against me, you go to my pastor mm-hmm. and you go to the bishop, and I trust the system. Yeah, right. right. I trust that the system will will validate that, mm-hmm. um, will validate me, um, but be very clear about it. Like I want the system to be used mm-hmm. in that regard. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. So that's my that's that's something I've been thinking. What have you guys been thinking about? Something. Lighter? Anything lighter? Far less serious. Okay. Um, I've been reading uh, this book called Word in Silence by Father Raymond Gronsky, and it's been talking about um, the kind of this weird spiritual phenomenon that we've been experiencing pretty much throughout humanity uh, that has shown up again in a really weird form in this kind of Neoplatonic, new Gnostic way of pitting the spiritual against the physical. Mm. Yeah. So well, I don't know if that's I, actually I less think... serious. No, it, <laughs> got, it got deep pretty quick. But we talked I, about I, him on another cast. I think, I think it's probably worth mentioning who Raymond, Father Raymond Goronsky was, um, especially for people here in, in Denver. I think right. um, you know, he was a father to me in a big way. Mm. And um, I would say that um, he's one of those people who probably will never have like a canonical um, canonization. Um, but he's but up I there. know question. I have no question that he's a saint. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, like, and I am reading passages, and sometimes my brain just overloads, and I'm like, Ray, what did you just say? And he, I just hear him laughing at me. You're on a first name basis with him. So I, that's good. you know, I've been talking to the saints since childhood. If I am not on first name basis <laughs> with our elder brothers and sisters in heaven, who can I be on the first name basis with? Yeah. Didn't he write stuff about like, um, the, like a sort of a dialogue with Buddhism and other Eastern religions? That's, I think that's what this is. So he had, yeah, it is. And he had a PhD in Buddhism. Are you um, serious? Yeah, no, one hundred percent. That is so I mean, cool. I, so cool. I just, I just, I just want to name this first and foremost. I dearly miss him. 
Oh, I really, I, I God, I'm almost tearing off Aww. just thinking about it. I dearly miss him. Um, he was, he was an incredible man. He died about a year and a half ago, and um, mm. just a just a phenomenal um, priest and man in Christ. But what he was, um, so he he he. We were talking about a, a mutual um, friend um, before the podcast um, as Father Christopher Frank, uh, as just being this like you you listen to their their life story and you're like I. I can't honestly believe that you slammed that much into a lifetime. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's and the you're same still thing. Sane? He, he died very young. Father uh, Father Raymond, Raymond that is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Father Chrysostom is um, very young as well. I mean, he's in his early 60s. Um, and <laughs> um, and you just, like, listen to both of their life stories, and it's just like, you, you, there's no way that that could possibly... You don't have enough years to be able to do that. <laughs> but um, Father, Father Raymond um, was on a, a program where he... Um, traveled the world uh, as part of his his undergraduate work and uh, when he was in in uh, the Far East he um, experienced sort of Buddhism and kind of uh, understood it and he, he has this great story about when he was driving a taxi in Hawaii um, for a few years um, and he would wake up every morning to the uh, to the um, the Buddhist monks chanting for the prayers of the dead in and Hawaii just how, in Hawaii like because it was a radio yeah. kind of program and so they would pick him up the radio broadcast and stuff and like how fitting that was it was i'm just going on and on but no um, that's amazing i mean he sounds like a truly like a ca- a, a catholic in the sense of universal, universal. Mm-hmm. he was a, a a jesuit he was he was ordained a russian catholic deacon he was ordained within the russian catholic right um so of course you know great love um for personally i have great love for that but um you know he was a he was a um, monk of a of a of a, a russian catholic monastery and it's just phenomenal stuff but anyways he uh he got a phd in in buddhist philosophy and his big contention was that buddhism is the height of human intelligence and human enlightenment yes i just finished that section and then he went off against zen and then i'm in the section on avagrius your my my guy. guy yeah which which was what we that's where I learned about Evagrius was from him. Oh, I don't think wow. he likes Evagrius very much. He doesn't much. like Evagrius. He can't stand him. Um, there's some other stories I'll tell you off mic about other things that I ended up doing that he couldn't stand, but um, that's beside the point. But um, but his, yeah, that Buddhism is the height of human wisdom. That's exactly, I think, his, his Yes, phrase. that's his phrase. Um, um, and yet Christianity is the height of divine wisdom. Divine revelation. Yeah, and I think, I think that's beautiful. really important because I think sometimes in the Catholic world, we throw our arms up in the air, and this kind of gets back to that mindfulness, and this was what I was pulling um, on that mindfulness episode, but that there's this sort of movement to just throw our arms up in the air and be like, well, if it's if it's not Christian, if it didn't come from Western Europe within the high Middle Ages, then it doesn't count, and it's evil and wrong. He maintained this kind of contention that we can learn a lot from Buddhism about the human person, mm-hmm. um, and yet all of that has to be understood within the larger context of... Um, of a Christian anthropology. Right. Um, this analogy just came to me. It's kind of like this culture has a gym, but you can't see through the gym unless you have the light. The light, which is Christ. And when you view this wisdom that this culture has in that light, then you can properly see it in its true form, as it should be. Mm-hmm. And without... Like, I loved how he was talking about how good... Buddhism was, um, and what's, what's the line? Um, 
everything good belongs to the church or something like that. Um, everything good and true and beautiful is of God, no matter where it originates on the globe. Yeah, test everything, right? Hold and, fast to that, which is good. Yes. Yeah. Is that Corinthians, um, Galatians? It's St. It's Paul. Why right? are you looking at me like I'm going <laughs> to give you the answer? I don't know. I'm, I don't know. He just reads these things every I Sunday. Just, I just read them and then pull, make up a homily on the spot. Um, he doesn't have five pages or anything at all. <laughs> it's four and a half. It's 1,000 words on the nose. Um, Are you serious? It absolutely is. Because I know I stopped listening after seven and a half minutes. So I only preach for seven and a half minutes and not a minute more. Nice. Um, anyways. Well, that's actually pretty good. Well, people can only retain it's so much Thessalonians. information. Thessalonians. Thessalonians. Of course, yeah. Well, I was going to say that, but I wanted to make sure that you would remember it. So I let you uh, yes. Right. Um, but I think, I think that's really insightful. You know, the other thing that... So how that kind of practically played out, I think, in his life, and I'm sure that there are others who, who can speak to this a little bit more, but how that kind of practically played out is that, I mean, he would, um, so when he was on our 30-day our silent retreat, this spiritual exercise of St. Augustine, um, mm-hmm. he led those for us. Uh-huh. Back when Deacon Basil was in the Roman seminary. When I was in the Roman seminary, yes. And uh, what he did was he would, he would always bring a... Uh, um, it sounds so bolder. Um, he would bring a, a, a prayer cushion, um, a Buddhist meditation cushion. Oh my gosh, oh, those yeah. cushions are so comfortable. Though. Right? And he would sit in the lotus position praying the Jesus prayer at the back. That's what I, that's what I do so in my floor pillow in or front I mean, of my icons. Yeah. I would say it's not quite within the St. Gregory of Sinai approach to, uh, to, um, Do I look like St. Gregory of Sinai? But it's not far off, I would. I would also add that it's not that far off. And I think that's really kind of an insight. What a magnanimous thing. man. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's phenomenal. I mean, it's just, just, yeah, I mean, he, he, he would just, he lived a life that was just beyond anything that I think, you know. Truly, like a tr- truly great. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he was, um, his family was, was Slavic um, and um, from Poland, from Prakow. Nice. Um, and, with a uh, name like Gronsky? Yeah, yeah those are my yeah, people. Thought, yeah. Yeah. Well, my, they're well. my people, too. Um, my, it's my very good. Side. It's called Word and Silence, yeah. and it's engaging um, the thought of Hansard's von Balthasar mm-hmm. with the East and Oriental thought. I had That was one of the books on my uh, Christmas Christmas wish list. I told I told um, Grace to pick one, so she mm. didn't pick that one. The other thing that I, I think is about Father Gronsky is that he... Uh, he gave a, uh, a series of talks with e- EWTN, of all places, um, on the spiritual exercises. Oh, and, um, Ignatius. It, well, yeah, I mean, Jesuit Ignatian. Sure, sure. He wasn't, I keep forgetting he was a Jesuit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, he tells this great story about um, coming across, to, um, he was flying back from um, Australia, of all places, and was, uh, was talking to a... Um, there you go. So he was flying back from Australia, and uh, there was this just really um, moment where he's on the plane with another Jesuit, and uh, we're talking about how the, the Raymond, Father Raymond, was like um, the Saint Ignatius was a mystic, mm-hmm. and like halfway through the flight, the uh, other Jesuit comes like walking up to him from the other side of the plane. He's like mm-hmm. with tears in his eyes, like he wasn't a mystic; he was an intellectual. He did all of these different things. And, like, but but Ignatian spirituality is mysticism by and large, mm. um, and I think there's something mm-hmm. really to that. Sounds um, very Eastern. He yeah yeah he was ridiculously interesting how he integrated both the East and the West together, um, and I didn't appreciate it when I was a Roman. I didn't appreciate that. I mean, I appreciated because my family, you know, Eastern 
Polish um, from Krakow and, and Southern Poland and you know kind of in that world as well and and that it's something we don't talk about maybe maybe we can talk about it at some point but that Slavic but it's, it's it's not just the Polish identity <laughs> it's the Slavic identity and mm. it's principally I think about a, being a thousand years of being the slaves of Slav means slave um, old English but the Slavic kind of slave um, mentality that then arose and you can see it within even modern politics with Russia today. There's so um, much intergenerational trauma in every Polish family. I mean, yeah. I mean, even in recent history, living through the occupation of the Soviet Union and the Nazis, yeah, and also having been wiped off the map for you know generations, literally, like mm-hmm. Poland didn't exist on the map. It's, I mean, <laughs> yeah, and and even when it has. It has been a puppet state of... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's strategically situated in between superpowers that have always been ready to conquer it. Yeah. Yeah, so... But it hasn't always been. I mean... No, I mean, actually, in the Middle many... Ages, it was, it was a considerable kingdom. It, it was a world power. I mean, yeah. and right. I think... I th- I, I'm sorry, I'm just going to totally get on my high horse, but it's a potpourri um, talk anyways. Yeah. I wish the West, uh, Western Christianity and, and Western Europe in general, knew the debt that they owed um, Jan Sobolewski and his yeah and his and oh his man Preach. I'm gonna I send mean, this one I'm to my dad. So <laughs> this podcast is going to my dad. Well, and this whole like oh well, it was Lepanto who was it's like no it oh, was the Hussars the Hussars who yeah. who came through the Hussars were winged the wings the wings on, on the yeah and nobody knows that. And, and you can't just stop there. The wings on the what? They oh, had oh, they attached giant fake wi- Polish n- cavalry cavalry attached wings to their suits of armor. And what it would do is it would actually it would um, give them better strategic ability, and then it would also muffle the sound of the entire thing, so you could you wouldn't hear them coming, and then all of a sudden you wouldn't hear them as well coming. Is that what it is? I've heard different reasons. That's so cool. But it's it's. it's, I I heard that it made it sound like there were more of them than there actually. Well, I think I think up close it did. Okay. Um, but there. Well, maybe I don't know. Maybe I have it backwards. Why have I never seen pictures of this? Well, if you go to Poland, you can you can buy all kinds of little. Go to a gift shop and you get the the hussars little. It, it it's like the sim well the symbol of Poland is the is the red and white um, flag with the, the with eagle the eagle, um and that the comes from, from Latch being the the king the Ojo Ojo Białe white eagle yeah uh, so but, thank you for saying that I mean the debt they owe to, to and honestly after a few drinks my dad would love to talk about Jan Sobolewski for like the rest of the night but honestly <laughs> there is something to admire in 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 that heritage yeah and and I remember I mean I he was. Uh, Father Ray was the was the first person I told I was leaving to go become Eastern Catholic, mm-hmm. um, and and um, he said, as a Slav, it's your right, your birthright, um, and it was just this moment of like realization mm-hmm. of like the Slavic identity, which is simply forgotten in Colorado. No, um, yeah, it's I, like... I mean, I, I grew up in kind of what I would say would be a, a kind of Polish world, um, right. in out here in Western. <laughs> Well, Western Denver, but well, to be fair, a lot of Poland has always been um, Latin, right? Right. No, absolutely. I would say almost all of it, with the exception of the very, very far south. Right. Right. Um, right. Which would be Ruthenian. Which would be Ruthenian. Now, um, yeah, but it's sort of like a you know like a Lebanese person you know uh, attending the Novus Ordo you know in English. I mean, it's like well within their right to do that, but. There's also a rich Maronite tradition that's Absolutely. fully Catholic that goes back to the earliest days of the church, you know, the earliest centuries of the church. And, uh, 
And I'm not saying, uh, just for the record, that you have to be Slavic to be involved in the Eastern Churches. Or, or that if like you're that. Slavic, you have to be involved no, in the Eastern Church. No, absolutely not. Yeah, but just I do what you want. That... Just love Jesus and do what you want. Well, uh, well we're saying but... more than that. We're saying, we're saying consider, <laughs> consider, you know, the remember, it's like remember your ancestors. Right? Yeah. yeah. Like, we kind of t- my ancestry is um, Bohemian and Moravian, which is the area where Cyril and Methodius were first sent. Right. That's so cool. Like, well, yeah, I... no, 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 Cyril and Methodius were not sent to anywhere except Moravia. Yeah. Um, that's so cool. And, you know, Moldovia. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's, that's really important. By the way, Bohemia is an actual territory um, in the Czech Republic uh, that surrounds Prague-ish. Yeah. So it's the artistic district, so basically. That's not about geography. I don't, know. Well, I don't even know where you're You're talking, talking about Poland for, like, 20 well, minutes Poland straight. is not a place. It's in your heart. Amen. And, and Woo! Okay. Um, <laughs> because it wasn't a place for, for so, so long. long. Yeah. You know the Polish national anthem, Jeszcze Polska nie zginęła? Yeah, I know uh, by kiedy, heart. Kiedy my żyjemy, uh, like, Poland is still not lost while we still live. Yeah. That's beautiful. I and, feel like the Polish and the Irish have a lot in common. Yeah, very similar thing. Well, yeah. and, Born uh, of suffering. And, and I would also add that it's not, it's not even just the Polish. The Poles. I would say it's the Slavs. The Slavs, yeah, no, it's the Slavs that. in general, because you know the pan kind of Slavic, the pan culture, Slavic unions. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, <laughs> it was an actual political movement to try and bring all of them together as a sort of imperial force yeah. against uh, against the. We would have taken over the world. Oh, we totally would have. If you could, you, know, you guys would always organize. Basically, in a hundred years, they had the largest empire in the world. Um, let's just, yeah, it was communist, but it was the largest. <laughs> um, but I think that's really important. Let's not be communist. In the sense that. In the sense that there is a history and there's a psychological ramifications. Maybe I can put a psychological Catholic psyche podcast. There you go. Bow on this here at the end here. Nah. But um, in the sense that there is psychological things that kind of move forward. We talk about in the Old Testament this kind of concept of trauma or, or sins that are passed on from the past. Right. Yeah. Unto the third or fourth generation. Unto, you yeah. Know, the right. sins of the father. Yeah. And. I mean, I think that there might be some interesting kind of theological questions for that, and perhaps I can leave that to more um, insightful people than me. But from a psychological perspective, when I hear that, I hear things like trans uh, or multi-generational trauma. Totally. Or multi-generational uh, worldview or multi-generational... Mm-hmm. I mean, I was just talking about this with a friend who's a, back in Rochester who's a biblical scholar, and... Um, and he, you know, we were talking about like how how to deal with some of those passages in the Old Testament where it appears that God is vengeful. And in this particular case, he was saying it's not that God is vengeful; it's that God is telling you this is how it is. This is the consequence. This is, this of is just such how action. it is. And so, and that's been borne out even by research. Like, mm-hmm. if you're familiar, it's a little bit contentious, but you know, um, Yehuda was the researcher who looked at um, families of Holocaust victims in in, in New York and found that. Um, even the children of Holocaust victims seem to have the kind of ner- uh, like stress response systems that people with PTSD have, mm-hmm. elevated cortisol, you know, hyperreactive amygdala, whatever. And it's like there might be some epigenetic mechanism by which trauma can actually be transmitted through generations up to maybe even the third and fourth generation. I have a tab open on my computer about this have i read it yet no well that's should the i tabs have are for. we talked about that we were talking just earlier about how 
how many tabs we have open in our browsers right now of all those important things that we need to read but we haven't quite gotten to. That's and right. it's just like Got a wide them. range of things. It's multi-generational trauma. It's Tolkien's article on fairy tales. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah, XYZ. It's completely random. Yeah, recipes for mold wine or something. You know, yeah. I actually was looking up cocktail random. recipes. <laughs> yeah. I think the, I, I want to swing back really quick because yeah, I think sure. from a psychological perspective this is really interesting. Epigenetics. Yeah. Oh, um, so and cool. So interesting. And basically the research on this as far as I remember and admittedly epigenetics is like the cutting the right. cutting edge of, uh, right. of research right now it's so cool but um so maybe this is out of, i'm sure it's out of date now but the idea being that they would run tests about fathers because fathers can actually change the genetic um the genetic code of the way in which they they the, the genetic code of the semen mm-hmm. that they then uh, produce um so a man has a child mm-hmm. uh, let's just say 20, just for simplicity's sake, mm-hmm. then spends 10 years practicing the piano, is the classic example, mm-hmm. in the, mm-hmm. within the Psych 101 textbooks, spends 10 years practicing the piano and then has a child at 30, the child at 30 is more likely to be a classical musician um, than a child at 20. You know, I've heard people go really far with this and say, like, this vindicates Lamarck, like Lamarckian evolution. Lamarck was, you know, one of Charles Darwin's com- competitors who who thought that, you know, like the giraffes who stretch their necks really hard would have offspring who would have longer necks, you know? And it's not quite that. Not quite to that extent. But, but, but yeah, it really seems like both the father and and the mother, too. I mean, don't underestimate the impact of the intrauterine environment. Oh, can certainly. Some, most, you know, and, and, and it works through, like, uh, methylation is one of the mechanisms. So it's like these, mm-hmm. these methyl groups attached to the chromosomes. So it's like the, the DNA gets... Uh, is the same, right? Your genes are the same, but they get expressed differently. And so right. in right. this case, maybe there's some gene expression. I don't actually know about the piano studies, but most of the epigenetic research I've looked at has to do with neg- negative twins. negative consequences. Yeah. Right, so, so that would be the other side, is like your father was, became an alcoholic right. between right. 20 and 30, and right. therefore the 30-year-old is more, or the child that he had at 30 is more likely to become an alcoholic. I, I mean, I think, I, think it's a, I think it's a both and, and I think... I, I think you can take it too far. Um, and, and the other thing is that I, I think the temptation with genetic stuff is to just throw your arms up and say, well, we're predestined to be X, Y, and Z. Ugh, and that's no. not at all the case. No. In fact, there's this concept of you have a genetic code and then life or whatever else activates the genes. And I think that's right. kind of what you're that's saying. That's kind of the basic theory of epigenetics. And even right. without epigenetics, your genes can only ever predispose. The way that's phrased in the literature is like predispose you. Like yeah. there is no no you're not determined uh, you, you you a you have a will yeah and Free b will. you you're you are determined in large part by by your environment and so we know that like a healthy nurturing environment can support growth even if you have you know whatever whatever your genes are whatever your genes are no one is predestined to be an alcoholic no one is predestined to to have any kind of sexual hang-ups. No one is predestined to be... No one is predestined to be broken. Well, in the general sense... Well, in the general <laughs> sense, we're all predestined because of sin to be broken. But well, I, not... I, I agree. I agree with yeah. that. That, um, In the sense that you can't take choice out of the matter um, in the long run. And I think, I think that's really kind of the important thing about psychology. And I think a lot of people... A lot of people there, there can be a tendency to just kind of say well that's just who i am and i just have to be that way but that's really not what the literature has kind of shown um on epigenetics well that's just the temptation in general in our society to 
throw choice and free will out the window to throw also throw to throw away responsibility. Absolutely. It's yeah. like I'm not responsible for my actions because I had no choice. It's just who I am. Uh-huh. It's like I have blue eyes. I can't control that. I've literally heard like scientists who are brilliant on other things say that, you know, we shouldn't for example, we shouldn't have any kind of punitive criminal justice system because people can't help committing crimes because they're genetically determined to do that. I I actually had a professor in undergraduate. um, Nope. It was so funny because um, I I, I had a professor in undergraduate be like, oh no, B.F. Skinner, who was the kind of founder of behaviorism, B.F. Skinner proved that there was no free will back with his rat studies. And I just was, I, I, I actually laughed in the professor's face and said, well, I'm so thankful that all theology, philosophy, and psychology has basically been thrown out the winner, the window because B.F. Skinner has found that a rat can push a rat up a bar really fast when yeah. he wants cocaine. Gee, thanks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, um, yeah. B.F. Skinner also got rats addicted to cocaine. Well, oh, well, yeah. but and, and he's very insightful. God love B.F. Skinner things, because actually he goes against this genetic determinism. He, he um, overemphasized the role of the environment. Right. Mm-hmm. Over- Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's kind of that classic, like, nature, is versus, it nature, nature versus nurture. The it's pendulum's like, oh, always you know, swinging. Both. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. always swinging. It's like, so, yes. Uh, I've got yes. a cool resource. I was listening to this great lecture by an um, up-and-coming, like, Thomistic philosopher named Daniel DeHaan, who has, like, essentially, as far as I can tell, he's getting, like, a second degree in neuroscience because he's interested Ooh. in philosophy of neuroscience. And that's an intersection that a lot of Catholic philosophers haven't really dug into yet, mostly because you need a lot of technical knowledge to do that work well. Well, and, and just cool. by the by, any degree in neuroscience from just five years ago is now in, like, obsolete, in obsolete yeah. by in some comparison senses, to what it is. You get the basic premise of it, yeah. but, like, there's new stuff coming out. The brain out. does things. such an exciting time when it comes to neuroscience. It's the golden age of neuroscience. But I'm sorry. So uh, he, he talks about these free, the, like, the free will experiments, right? Because, you know, there have been, and, and there's famous studies in the literature, um, neuroscience literature that claim to disprove free will. And, and he does a brilliant job in this talk. I think it's on the Thomistic Institute podcast, if anyone wants to look it up. Daniel DeHaan does a brilliant job of showing how these researchers will front load the experiment with their preconceived notion of what free will is, what experiments can show, what the limitations of neuroscience are or aren't, and the relationship between neural activity and free will, and bias the results in advance with these um, sort of like particular philosophical positions, which which may or may not be correct. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's what's so frustrating about poorly... Well, it's, it's, it's what's so frustrating about simply throwing your arms up in the air and being like, well, philosophy isn't important, psych, uh, uh, psychology, or, or, um, or science is the only thing that's important. If I can't measure it, then it doesn't exist. That's right. Or science I mean, has the, disproven philo- the need for philosophy need for, or any yeah. of that. Like, Crap. the very principles of science are philosophic. 100%. Right. Um, and to simply just throw that out the window just shows how ignorant you really are to the, to, to the it situation. It was called the philosophical sciences. Right. Well, you still get a, a PhD, a doctorate of philosophy in psychology. Yeah. Well, that's the entire concept back to Aristotle. Right. I also might have Googled how long it takes to get a PhD recently. Too long. Too long for you? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait a decade before I get, do that again. That's cool. I, I always appreciate when people do that. Like, a lot of my professors in grad school worked throughout their like 20s, 30s, and 40s, and then went for PhDs. There's something cool about I that. I think that can be something really helpful. Yeah. Um, although I also see the value of just getting... Oh, yeah. I think you see it both ways. But in, in but what, if I, what if I want a third master's degree? 
Hey, you're talking to the wrong person about this question. <laughs> yeah, well, good luck. My wife was like, ones. my wife was like, should we save for your degree or for your kids? It's like, oh, thanks. Okay. The idea is that your degree is an investment that helps pay off your kids. Well, that's how that was my argument. Your argument. Yeah. Well, my my argument is always just that student loans are usury, which is a mortal sin. So, I'm just saying, Sally May needs a lot of intercession if she wants to not go to hell. <laughs> Sally May is not a person. No. Okay. Um, yeah, well... Um, not to sidetrack us at all. Philosophy and psychology, that could be a good topic for a future podcast. I Isn't that, that basically be... what we do every single time well, we talk? Well, it's true, but I mean, even just an explicit engagement, because we, we use all these terms all the time, like free will and mind. And in the Greek, you talk about the noose. And it's like, these are philosophical terms that need that need exploration. And these are no, none of these concepts can be... Can be um, fully explicated through measurement or even fancy fMRI brain scans yeah I want to I want to just on that point I want to bring people's attention to the the color of thought podcast oh um, which is just I mean it's just absolutely phenomenal it's a a, a a Catholic psychotherapist out of California actually who really I mean very insightful when it comes to Aristotle and Aristotelian and Thomistic um, stuff um, yeah, he's great. A number of times, and um, I meant to plug him in a previous episode. Yeah, yeah. he's great. It's color of thought. Look it up. The color yeah, of right. thought. He's wonderful. Chris he's is a doing huge this. fan. I am. Oh, he's a Thomist. Yes, and he's why. been doing this longer than we have. He has. Yeah, and 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 is insightful as far as kind of this this connection. So I think that's really. He's actually going to be. We're going to be uh, doing some joint work, um, kind of moving forward. A little um, teaser like, for little, the little fans. Stuff. So here we go. Da, da, da. Um, collaboration. Collaborate. That's the word. Thank you. Collaboration. Yeah. So, uh, but I think that I think that's really important um, to simply. I think we in the Catholic world, and particularly within the Catholic psychological world, whatever that means, yeah. um, in in its kind of nitty gritty. Well, I, I, I think this is something that we've talked about in general over the years, but uh, over the years, over the months, um, has been the, uh, it feels like years. Uh, no, um, <laughs> it's laborious. Um, You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, um, has been that there can be this tendency on the part of the Catholic Church to simply say that we have Thomas Aquinas, therefore we don't need science or measurement. Like, like, like all intellectual pursuits mm. ended with the death of Thomas. Um, Thomas wouldn't have said that. Well, no, exactly. Thomas would be so, Thomas is so angry about that. I can hear him in my head right now, just being disgusted and throwing his hands up. No, he is completely um, in, immersed. Livid. He's immersed within the uh, the uncreated light of the theos, uh, of the theological the- theos. Oh, so he's not, yeah, there you go. He can't not he to be a typical vision or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was this just is, reading Calvinus about that. This is a theology uncre- joke. Yeah. The uncreated light. But, um, but anyways, um, this yeah. is the East-West joke. Yeah, so... so, so but that I, was I, progress. Really That's really important, and I think the struggle can be that we can throw our arms up in the air and be like, well, science is, you know, not important because we have, you know, we have theology. Um, or on the flip side, perhaps we've heard, we've, I think we've all heard this, oh, well, psychology or, or whatever disproves the need for God or disproves the need for uh, for theology or philosophy It's just replaced uh, the emotional needs that people found in church. So we don't right. need church anymore because we have therapy. Right. I'm still, I would love, I, why don't they have like the, First Church of Science, where you can go worship at the foot of Scientology? Like the, the graduated cylinder or something. Well, this quite, Scientology is not quite <laughs> even that, but like I, I, I think I think um, that's called um, some hard science universities. Um, 
Chris. No, I mean, honestly, uh, you, you go started, get a PhD and that. It's a really, yeah, no. It is, it is. Well, it's not, I, I see it less in the universities and more in, like, the pop science, like mm. the I effing love science memes that you saw, like, a couple of years ago and the, the Neil deGrasse Tysons and the Bill Nyes and the Richard Dawkins. Bill Nye isn't even a real scientist. <laughs> well, he I am have, he so have disappointed. An in, like, engineering. I mean, okay, but. Like, but Guys, I, just childhood me is just very disappointed right now. I don't know. I think he taught us a lot of new science in that show where he, like, had He the, taught me how cool it was to make things explode. The ice cream people cha- learned about, like, acceptance. That was a beautiful lesson in science, if you've seen that cartoon from Bill Nye. I you have know? not, but I no, think, I think, I think at least what we do here at, at our practice is that we integrate both of them together. Right. Um, because they're needed. That it's not... It's not that it's theology or psychology, it's theology and psychology. Yeah. And that the human person at its deepest level is unified deeply at, at um, being right. an intersection between the two. But that mm-hmm. takes a lot of work. And that takes say, a lot of reading. It's not easy. No, it's not. We, we, we've talked about doing a podcast on the difference between um, Catholic therapy mm-hmm. and therapists who happen to be catholic right. right and i often see an awkward integrate i mean i, I even feel in, in myself you know we you know we i think we can laud ourselves for the work we've done in this topic but for me it still feels like sometimes like i'm operating on two parallel tracks it is difficult to fully integrate those things just because it's such a it's such a task it's a challenge yeah no yeah. yeah so i mean like you know we we want them to be like, like a truly theological psychotherapy but that's like the ultimate goal, I feel like. Yeah, and 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 it's a real challenge. Um, and I, I mean, I've I've been doing this slightly longer than you as far as explicit this Catholic. Catholic yeah, I've worked in Catholic secular institutions for a while, um, and and probably have more experience, and oh, you do have more experience in, in secular institutions than I do. But it, it is it is a real challenge, and it's one of those things where I I even after all of this time will be like. Oh, that was a little bit more of like a spiritual direction approach, yeah, oh, and that's wow. more of the domain of what a spiritual director should be working with than a than a therapist. Or I've got to bring this a little bit back to to kind of a center here, and I mm. think that's constantly a temptation and a struggle, um, even for me who's been doing this for for many years now. I want to ask Sarah about this because you're going to a secular university for your counseling degree. Right. So, well, I mean, it's a Jesuit university. It's a secular. Pro- it's a, but it's a secular. It's a secular program. program. Yeah. Is what I mean. It's yeah. not like Divine but, Mercy IPS used to be called. Right. So, so right. for you, I mean, is this something you think about? Like when you're All in class, time. do you think about what's the Catholic? How can I baptize this? Yeah, pretty much. Um, sometimes I actually think in those words. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think that's important. Yeah. That's what Goronsky did. Yeah. Yeah. He no. baptized Buddhist thought. No, like. I was taking a class on fairy tales and legends and mythology this past semester. Is that part of the therapy program? Yes, it was part of the depth certificate. Oh, the they're Jungian. Jungian over there, yeah. Right? Uh, well, part of it. This is more of a narrative approach. It was by a narrative Bennett, right? Jungian thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love this professor. Uh, <laughs> it was so Tell much us fun. About like fairy tales, first of all. It was so much fun because I love stories. Um, I really want to get the a narrative um more into more narrative uh therapy so that's like one of my goals because this was one of the things that drew me to the augustine institute was their emphasis on the story of humanity Mm. and 
where we are and who we are and our identity. And that's kind of roughly also the train of thought of narrative as well. Like, who are you in your story? Um, what roles do you play? And who do you want to be? Who? What other stories influence you? Um, it's so Catholic. It, it's so Catholic. And they just, like, they're so close. They're so close. It's just like, oh! Well, because, yeah, like you said, salvation <gasps> is a story. It is. And we have a role in the grand narrative. Yes, it's, like, it's like... so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And as we were, like, talking about things, um, the, the phrase that he used was the soul of the world. And I just wanted to stop and say, Doc, this world doesn't have a soul. We have souls. Human beings have souls. I'm just going off on a ranch right Although now. Although, well, if you're SCOTUS, it's, it's an open question whether or not the world is a substance. Well, that, that's true. But it's it was so interesting because it was the engagement with the idea of world versus God. And I actually asked this oh, question yeah. because I was confused by the language. It's like, this is the language that I would use to describe a personal God. Did you say that? Al- almost. That's like, cool. the yeah. People interrupted, so I couldn't get there. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I know. I would love to have the conversation with him. Um... But he was like, yeah, it's God, the world, whatever you feel like, God's... Higher power Higher power, the yeah. universe. Yeah. Um, it's like, but the world isn't personal. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those things that mm. I realized That's I was deep. so grateful to be Catholic because we have a story. Even if we don't all know it, like, there is a story. And this is, this is my point that I want to tell you, dear listener land, today. There is a story and you can know it. And you don't have to walk in the dark. Yeah. And, and I also just want to kind of swing back around because uh, those of those listeners who have kind of read about narrative therapy and stuff, that deep down there's this sort of narrative approach, which I think is postmodern and deconstructionist in its nature. Mm-hmm. But I actually don't think that's what you're saying. Um, I, I know that's not what you're saying. <laughs> in the sense that deconstructionism is not necessarily the characteristic of the narrative itself, the communicative Right. You have to define what deconstructionist means. So, yeah, I mean, that Grace and I get tripped up on, all, on this all the time. You know, we both have philosophical commitments, my wife and I, and those philosophical commitments are in opposition to the philosophical foundations of a lot of these really cool new therapies, like mm-hmm. narrative therapy. The, the creators of narrative therapy will be the first to tell you this springs from a very like postmodern way of looking at things where there's no, you know, privileged narrative and you kind of are at liberty to co-construct or construct your own reality, you know, but like we're saying, Deacon, like the, the, the fundamental method of narrative therapy is very amenable to a Catholic worldview, even if the ostensible foundation of narrative therapy is not. Right. And that's where we have to baptize and purify the language and the practices that we use well and that's you know things like you got to be careful with this but like things like Jungian therapy at the same time mm-hmm. was narrative before it was before narrative existed yeah or like the one good thing jordan peterson did like self-authoring <laughs> which for the record i mean without endorsing an entire system of psychology at this point i think self-authoring is probably one of the best things that has um, come about in the last two years wow cool all right that's yeah. solid i nice. mean yeah all right. Yeah, so narrative approaches are huge. Yeah, that'd be a cool thing. I think there are books on narrative therapy and Christian counseling. I don't own them, but I've, no, I've seen one. Yet. I've seen one. You don't own them yet? I'll leave that to you. It's not my. It's actually not my bag. I use I use it in ways. I use aspects of narrative, but um, when I work with younger children, it's harder to do narrative, right? Yeah, I, I, I have noticed this as a mm-hmm. father. 
um, talking about narrative, um, kind of from a more Jungian perspective, actually, um, in the sense of how does that tie into your experience of the world? How does that then, how does the fairy tale, for example, kind of using your, yours, but in general, how does that tie into your experience of the world? And I think one of the big things that fairy tales, but liturgy, especially Eastern liturgy, but Western liturgy too, um, religion in general, mm -hmm. um, civil and religious holidays like we've had over the last few weeks, yep. all of what all of these things do is it actually gives us context, context, but emotional intelligence. Yes. Yeah. It's like, I'm supposed to feel this way about this event. Or, or I know what that event is feels like mm -hmm. because I have a psalm that corresponds to that. Right. For example, my experience of walking into getting ready for confession is Psalm 50, 51 in the yeah. Roman uh, thing. Like, I know what that feels like. Yes. It's a and I view song. life through that lens. Right. I view life through um, the, you know, I, I I was raised by classical musicians, so I like, I, I, I Like Allegri's Miserere. Right, yeah. or, 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 or Chopin. You yeah, know, like sure. In that way, and like, like that experience, mm. kind of tying it back really quick, but like that experience of sort of a national identity <laughs> for Chopin, from Chopin. Yeah, um, I just you know, re replay Poland's historical trauma when I, before I go into the confessional really quick. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. such nerds. In, in a way, though, you do, don't you? I mean, actually. But um, no, I think but, that's, that's really in there. Right, like we're Americans, so everyone, whether or not you admit it, you've seen a Hallmark movie and you know the expression, it feels like waking up on Christmas morning as a kid. Like, well, and it's that it's that feeling of joy and anticipation that we identify with that event in childhood. Yeah, um, I think it's healthy. Like, I, rituals I, are rituals are super healthy. Um, we talked about ritual a lot in this class. Oh, yeah, I believe it. Yeah, it came up in the grief and loss episode. But I mean, in trauma work, ritual is huge. Dr. Bruce Perry talks about this, how like non-Western cultures have healing rituals mm -hmm. that, by which they make meaning out of suffering. And we don't have those, and so we're left to our own devices, and that well, it's awful. And, and we as Catholics do have, but we that. as Catholics things do. like right. the anointing of the sick, which is unfortunately, mm -hmm. I think, actually been kind of mitigated to a last rites kind of experience within the West. But mm. but we do have those kind of rituals. We do have those anointings in general, not not even maybe what we would call sacrament anointing. The forty day liturgies for the, the dead, the dead, the panahitas, the. Parastas, um, the uh, the liturgies of, of memorial and, and, and funeral and things. All the feast days. I really want an Eastern Catholic funeral because it's just so much more dramatic. Oh man, like the hymn of Saint um, John of Damascus, like holy smokes, which is like. You're, I want you're people to weep and to miss me and I pray mean, for my soul. It's, it's intense, but you heard it here first. So you can yeah, pray for so my soul now. I'll accept that. Um, I'm not dying but, anytime soon, but but I, 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 I yeah. know that about you now. Yeah, uh, but I think I think there's something to that. I think there's. I think it's important. Um, yeah, I think it's important to kind of, kind of have that. And there's rituals within even our everyday lives, whether we admit it or not. I mean, when I come home, I give my wife a kiss first, then I give my daughters a kiss. Even though I have to walk past my daughters to give my wife a kiss. Like, that's intentional. Mm -hmm. And that's a ritual that is developed. I think that's a process of ritual connection that develops over time. Which and is I, good. Like, those little rituals, we all have rituals. Whether or not we realize that it's a ritual. It's the way you get up in the morning and go about your day. Do you wash your face first or do you brush your teeth first? Do you grab breakfast and sit down or do you go in the car? Right. 
it's like these things that we do in our everyday lives that give us context and meaning to our identities are important and it is better to be intentional about them and to make decisions about them even if it's just pausing and realizing what you're doing and then deciding that you're going to do it anyway yeah absolutely because without intentionality we just fall into these mundane habits that may or may not be helpful and may or may not be healthy yeah absolutely well i just looked at the time um, and listener land just got kind of an experience of, uh, what happens here every, every, <laughs> every week here, um, before the mic turns on. But I think this is helpful. And I think, you know, hopefully some, there's been some kind of insight as to what, uh, what, um, we think about, we think about and a how random our brains things, work. but I think this is really important. So, um, maybe we should go ahead and leave that there and, uh, you know, a quick idea for a future, um, potpourri episode. If we do another one of these free for alls, let's have, Listeners suggest topics or books what do you want us to articles. rant about? Yeah, well, and I think I think that's a more in depth one than the than the Monday show, um, which is just a quick question and answer. But yeah, like, yeah but like one for the three, yeah. one for the larger group, the three or four of us, or however many we have that day, to talk and about listener suggested topics or articles. And if that if they do that, they can do that through catholicpsyche.com um, on the contact us page and they yep. can send us an email as to ideas of yep. kind of a more in-depth kind of question. Or comment on the SoundCloud. Or comment on SoundCloud or, or on the website. So Yeah, all right. Well, all right, let's guys. go ahead and end it there. But uh, it's, this has been the Catholic Psyche Podcast. Y'all take care. Adios. Bye.